0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Almost two months ago, the former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court joined this show. The topic was constitutional law in a pandemic. Michael Wolf is one of Missouri's elder statesmen. And on that day, in my opinion, he did not disappoint. In fact, in the two months that have followed that show, I found myself thinking frequently about what he said on the air that day. And I want to play that back for you all today. This is what former Chief Justice Justice Michael Wolf said on April 1st about constitutional rights in the age of the coronavirus.
1: There are a number of things that in ordinary times think of as being violations of your constitutional rights, which include the right to travel between states, the right to travel generally, uh, the right to associate, the right to freedom of association, the right to go to your church and worship as you wish. All of those take a back seat to the, uh, uh, when there's a something that's facing a serious public health threat. So the courts see these challenges, and there will be challenges to these things. But I kind of had three guidelines for how we look at these things. First of all, in an emergency, as, in a, as when a, where there's a war or a pandemic that threatens the health or safety of the people, the government's going to do what the government's going to do. And we'll find out later, maybe years later, whether it was constitutional. My rule number two is that many of the acts of government during these unusual times are unconstitutional. But I'd have to tell you, see rule one. Uh, and then I have my third rule, which is really not a legal uh, principle, but I think it's probably true in sort of public health context, is that everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist. Afterwards, everything we have done may seem inadequate. So there we are. And the law tries to fit itself into that. And we have principles uh, that we need to remember. We need libertarians, conservatives and liberals to remember our values because we're going to be sacrificing some of them in in this time.
0: And that, again, is Michael Wolf, the former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court. You can see why that thought lingered for me. He just said it, laid it all out so eloquently. Um, that was April 1st, and now it's May 28th. And many of those legal questions are still making their way through the courts, but a few things are becoming a bit more clear. And joining us today to dig into how these issues are playing out in the metro area in real time in courtrooms across the place is an ace panel of experts. And that today includes Bill Freivogel. He's a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. He's also an attorney. Uh, Bill, welcome back. Hi. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorovsky She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorovsky Law. Uh, Nicole, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, this month, we're joined by Dave Rowland. He's the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. And I should note, he also joined us on April 1st for that great discussion with Chief Justice Wolf talking about con law. That's his area of expertise. So, David, thank you for joining
2: us. It is always a pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me on.
0: So as Michael Wolf noted so eloquently, the government is gonna government. And in St. Louis County, that has meant taking a local chain of gyms to court. They're called the House of Pain. And the county has taken them to court for opening in defiance of the health department's orders. Nicole, let's start with you. What is the basis of, of what the county is claiming here in this case?
3: So basically the county is claiming that our state constitution, some of our state statutes and uh, the county charter all contain provisions that allow health officials to enforce restrictions to protect public health and um, that they have chosen to use those uh, restrictions laws and um, um, established, um, you know, rules in the constitution and charters to um, say that it's just not safe for gyms to reopen at this point um, you know again that's going to be an interpretation of those uh, laws and statutes and um you know whether or not that's um protecting pu- public health at this point and whether that still needs to be done and i think you know judge wolf's um, statement hits it exactly perfectly, which is, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, secondhand quarterbacking on, you know, whether we got it right. And I say we as in society, you know, got it right on judging, um, you know, were we too restrictive? Were we not restrictive enough?
0: Uh, Bill Freivogel, do you think the House of Pain has any chance to succeed on this? It seems like across the nation, gyms are the thing that people aren't quite ready to have reopen yet.
4: Well, you know, I guess I don't know if they have a chance, but I think one thing that that hurt their chances was we did get a a, a, deci- a, a, a memorandum uh, decision by a U.S. district judge Stephen Clark in a case involving another gym and a uh, an antique uh, shop that wanted to open up, and he said that the city and county officials had the authority to to issue these health directives uh, during this time of a pandemic uh, and that the courts were really not in a good position to second guess their decisions. And that the local, specifically that the local authorities in St. Louis and St. Louis County had that authority. It wasn't just an authority for the state health uh, director.
0: So the, and, f- the fact a the judge has said that, does that mean that's kind of uh, all systems are a go, they can just do this now? <laughs>
4: Well, it doesn't mean that all systems are go. That was a that was an order that turning down a uh, a temporary request for a temporary restraining order, and so then there'll be a trial on the merits of everything uh, further on. But he went into a lot of detail uh, in in his in denying the temporary restraining order, and so at least in district in the district court, you know that would be something that in U.S. district court in Eastern District of Missouri, that would be something that the any other. Judge would have to would have to pay attention to. As for as for Mike's uh, wisdom, I mean, Mike's almost always wise. But I'd have to put a, I'd want to put a whole lot of footnotes on on his wisdom there. I mean, remember uh, there was a there there was a there were the Japanese uh, American internment camps in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Korematsu U.S. Supreme Court said that was just fine. It took him to last year to say, oh, we were wrong. We were wrong about that. And we 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 remember uh, some of the Johnny Ashcroft excesses after 9/11, rounding up 5,000 uh, Middle Eastern men uh, with n- uh, no uh, reason to believe that they actually were guilty of anything. Uh, military tribunals. It's it's actually it's actually at times of uh, big uh, stress on society that legislatures are more most most likely to violate people's civil, civil liberties.
0: That's a good point. Um, Nicole, thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, part of what Bill, I think, is saying more
3: articulately than I was saying is that, you know, the Constitution and a lot of our uh, laws allow for things that are going to be just per se constitutional because they're literally written into the Constitution. So in... Um, march as you can remember the president declared because of the pandemic there was a national state of emergency and then on the same day our governor declared there was a national state or i'm sorry a statewide state of emergency and when that happens that automatically triggers a number of provisions in um you know state and uh, federal constitution that allow for a lot of government action you know, down the road, whether we decide if that was, you know, morally correct is sort of a different issue. But legally, you know, those triggers are in the Constitution. And, you know, they're not, I don't
0: think, um, easily challenged. Dave Roland, uh, I, I have to suspect you want to hop in here.
2: Yeah, I sure do. So um, it is true that, as Mike noted, uh, there is a lot of leeway that the government tends to get in times of emergency, especially when you have a contagious disease. Um, the one thing that we explored a little bit in that show is that not every constitutional right gets suspended. Though There are two in particular that courts continue to take very seriously, and that's the right to due process and also the right to equal protection. Hmm. And so what we have been seeing over the last month and a half with some of these legal challenges um, have been basically courts looking at, are these emergency measures being applied evenly? um, And are the businesses that are being affected given an opportunity for due process? Um, There was a case in Ohio recently where a gym successfully pushed back against the state regulations in part because uh, there was no process for them to follow to kind of get a reevaluation of whether they could be considered uh, a, an essential business or if they were being treated the same as other businesses. Hmm. And so um, I think that if House of Pain wants to assert a due process or an equal protection claim, uh, they may actually have a viable constitutional defense because again, um, even though emergency measures are, um, do allow for significant exercise of governmental power, those will never absolutely trump the Constitution itself. And so, uh, again, I, I think that the most important thing that government officials can do in the emergency time is, number one, make sure that you are doing your business in public eye, you know, instead of doing things behind closed doors. But number two, making sure that you're um, applying the law evenly to everybody. Uh, If they do those two things, they have a much better chance of their measures being upheld as constitutional. If they fail to do those things, there's a significant possibility that challengers might prevail.
0: Nicole, thoughts on that? Well, I was just
3: going to say that is a perfect lead in from Dave on um, the other case that we were talking about, um, you know, in uh, St. Louis County of some of these churches that are uh, looking at suing over, their attendance limits and not being allowed to fully reopen because they are actually claiming exactly what David's talking about under, uh, equal protection, um, portions of the constitution that they are being treated less favorably than these secular organizations or these secular businesses. And they're claiming, um, that that is a violation of equal protection. Now, you know, it's arguable whether they are and the fact that we're talking about two cases, one is a secular business and, you know, one is um, about a religious institution kind of leads me to believe that they're not being treated differently because obviously they're both unhappy. Um, But that is a great segue, I think, um, talking about the equal protection clause and um, whether um, places are being treated equally.
4: I mean that. Just to follow up on that, that's that's definitely true. That if a if a church were treated uh, uh, in a way that was less favorable than a secular institution, you know that would be unconstitutional. You wouldn't be able to defend uh, even an emergency measure based upon upon that. The other thing that's coming up in a lot of these cases is uh, even if these emergency measures, as they are, are almost always. Uh, legal and constitutional at the beginning. For how long are they constitutional? Hmm. And, uh, so, for example, in Illinois, does the does the governor's emergency power end after 30 days? Uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the, in a you know partisan four Republican judges, three Democratic judges, ruling said that the governor of Wisconsin's authority had run out. He, he, was, he was keeping the stay closed too long. So this question of how long also factors in.
0: We're talking to our legal panel today. Uh, we need to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we're going to continue this conversation. And if you have a question or comment for this panel, specifically as to the cases that we're talking about here today and legal issues um, involving this pandemic, you can give us a call at 314 382 8255. That's 382 TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. You can email us at talk at STLpublicradio.org. And our panel today uh, that was just Bill Fry Vogel speaking. He's at Southern. Illinois University Carbondale. We also have Nicole Gorovsky of Gorovsky Law and David Rowland. He's the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. We will be back to this conversation in just a moment, so hang tight. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.
4: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more.
0: And now back to our conversation. We're talking to David Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, Nicole Garofsky of Gorovsky Law, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We were speaking a bit about the government's ability to just shut things down um, in this pandemic and what happens if a business tries to challenge that, as in the House of Pain, uh, which is a gym that St. Louis County is now suing, saying they opened before they were allowed to, and as in a church, that is now suing St. Louis County, saying, hey, these requirements are not fair to us. And that case is actually going to be in court this afternoon. Dave Rowland, I know you're particularly interested in issues involving um, the right to practice your religion. What are your thoughts on this church case in particular? Do you think they have a, a, a good chance of prevailing here?
2: So one of the things that we have seen over the last six weeks is that courts have been very, um, very emphatic that if exceptions are made from emergency orders for secular businesses, then ex- similar exceptions must be made for churches. We saw it initially with um, churches that wanted to have drive-through services hmm. and the courts noted, look, if, if you're allowing drive-through service at a liquor store, surely you can allow drive-through service for a house of worship. Um, this, uh, this, church of the word case is slightly different because they do want to meet indoors. They do want to have gatherings larger than are being allowed for some other purposes. Um, but, they're arguing that it's just straight up a violation of their religious freedom. So one of the things that I thought it was really interesting about this is Nicole suggested before the break that they were making an equal protection argument, and I know that some media outlets have covered it that way, but when I read the complaint, they actually don't raise a claim under the equal protection clause, Ooh. and I really think they should have, uh, because frankly, um, that's their best argument, uh, aside from uh, they could also argue that um, restricting their ability to have services in the way that they see fit would also violate Missouri's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which raises the bar really, really high. Uh, what do you mean by that, Ra-
0: raises the bar really high?
2: Okay, so so when someone wants to challenge uh, a law or a policy that the government has implemented, um, courts have different levels of scrutiny. Um, you know, in other words, bars that the litigants have to jump over mm-hmm. in order to win the case. And with religion, usually the bar is very low for the government to win the case. Um, and so by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, Missouri established a much higher bar that the government has to clear in order to justify a restriction on an act of worship. And so um, had the, the plaintiffs in this case, the church, had they invoked the Religious Freedom Protection Act um, or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? then the government would have had, I think, an even more difficult time prevailing in the lawsuit. They might mm-hmm. still prevail, but it would have been a higher hurdle for them to clear in order to do so. Interesting. Um, so I think the church has a chance to prevail here, although maybe if they had chosen a different legal theory, they might have an even better opportunity.
0: Hmm. I hope just, those lawyers are listening. Bill?
4: Just, just two little points on that. While, Dave, while David's correct about it being a what's called a free exercise, First Amendment uh, claim you know they do say uh, they do say in their claim that they complained that uh, they are uh, having much more substantial burdens on their meetings their gatherings than are a wide range of secular businesses so you know there's this equality element to, Uh, freedom of uh, free exercise claims that they argue. and Plus, you know, while David's right, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has this very high uh, bar of proof. They actually are asserting that bar uh, uh, without actually citing the act uh, directly. They say that the state's rules have to be narrowly tailored and the least restrictive means possible, which is exactly the the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, burden.
0: Dave?
2: Yeah. So you're right. They they have raised that issue. And um, frankly, I think that that's the way the First Amendment should be interpreted. It's the way the First Amendment, the free exercise provision was interpreted prior to a case called Employment Division versus Smith about 30 years ago. Um, in Employment Division versus Smith, they said that standard no longer applies for a pure free exercise claim. And the Supreme Court is actually going to be hearing a case next term Uh, sometime in the fall where they are going to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith and decide should this be the standard going forward. But as of right now, I actually think the plaintiffs here have articulated the incorrect standard for a First Amendment claim. So we'll see what the courts do with that. And it may be that this case the Supreme Court hears in the fall impacts the way that this particular uh, litigation comes out. I
0: do want to get to a couple other topics here. But before we do that, um, before the break, we've touched very briefly on how long these stay-at-home orders can go. And I know there is this lawsuit going on in Illinois that was actually filed by a state representative, this guy named Darren Bailey. And there have been some interesting developments on this case. Bill, can you get us up to speed on what's going on on the other side of the river?
4: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Darren Bailey's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, guy from, uh, I think, Xenia is uh, the South East uh, Illinois uh, county he's from, uh, you know, very much of a very um, uh, down, rock ribbed Republican. He he was kicked out of the uh, uh, of the Illinois House uh, a couple, about eight days ago because he didn't wouldn't wear his mask. That was a there was a bipartisan uh, vote. To do that, uh, to 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 say, you know, if if you're not going to wear your mask, you can't be on the, at the in the house proceedings, uh, you know, as they're moving forward. So this guy's Um, a
0: rebel who's willing to endanger his his fellow legislators' health.
4: Yeah, right. Although I did see he came back two days later with. uh, he came back two days later with a mask on, so he, <laughs> he, he eventually capitulated. He caved. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, there's some interest. So, so there the question in Illinois is very much, uh, uh, gov- as Governor Pritzker, in uh, employing the Illinois Emergency, Emergency Management Act uh, powers, uh, has he exceeded the time limit for them? Because there's a statutory, uh, 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 the statute says, that he has these powers for 30 days, and he's well over uh, the 30 days. And uh, there was a state judge who ruled, yes, he had—the uh, governor had exceeded that time limit. Um, then the, uh, uh, there was a, a, a new substitute uh, lawsuit filed by Bailey. Uh, the, the attorney general asked—removed it to federal court. And then in a sort of surprising uh, development last Friday, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department under Attorney General Barr uh, entered the case uh, to say it really, uh, on the side of, of Bailey, uh, to say the case should go back to state court because it really is a state legal interpretation, you know, what does the Illinois Emergency Management Act mean and how long... Can it be used by the governor? That's an that's a state interpretation. Should be done by a state court. Bill, and so even we, though should yeah, we take this
0: as a sign that the Department of Justice is sympathetic to Representative Bailey's overall argument, or are they just looking at this one little jurisdictional, not little, one large <laughs> jurisdictional issue? <laughs>
4: I, I think we should take it as a sign that they're very interested in this and uh, because i mean it's very extraordinary that they would you know enter a, you know, enter a case on just the kind of the issue of should it be in state court or should it be in in federal court uh, and and i think it's been you know it, it's this is it's been very clear that uh, the attorney general bar and the president are you know believe that the con- country should be opened up faster and are very I think that uh, the attorney general is very eager to be involved in cases going forward that relate to questions of constitutional freedoms being impinged upon by uh, by these uh, health orders
0: I actually want to go to the phone lines um, we've got a caller here with a good question for our panel and, and after that then I want to um, get to some other litigation that has to do with institutions of higher education um, but let's go to Dennis he's calling from Overland um, Dennis hi you're on st. Louis on the air
5: hi and hello to all of the panel uh, I I'm in uh, I have ended up in Guanajuato, but i'm back here because of uh, (laughs) the pandemic Ah,
3: i wanted to point out
5: yes it's good to be back in in some respects um i i wanted to point out that the 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 cries of persecution is is just a little bit much uh we have the most freedom of religion in all the world pretty much and all of these people from their various religions do not have to be in a church, and the people that want to work out do not have to be in a gym in this situation. Uh, you know, push-ups, you can do push-ups, you can, you can pray, uh, the, the places where we are ending up with this virus taking off unfortunately is in large places like the bar in the Ozarks and in churches. So the, the virus doesn't discriminate.
0: Dennis, thank you for that. Um, thank you for that point. I think that's that's a fair thing. And certainly that choir practice in Seattle, that was very concerning to a lot of people. Um, yeah, Dave, I know that the, the church sort of takes on that question in their litigation. They're saying that this is intrinsic to their faith, um, that they have to be together in person. Does that make any difference yeah, legally? It,
2: um, it, it is important. Um, so it is one thing for someone who is not part of a particular faith community to say, "Oh, well, this isn't that important." Um, if the faith community believes that it's important, then it is in fact important. And uh, this Church of the Word uh, case, they they specifically pointed out why they do believe that it's so important that they gather in person as a family, that they participate in certain acts together as a community. Um, and so it, one of the reasons that we have a First Amendment and a protection for the free exercise of religion is to make sure that people from outside of a faith community cannot, un, without um, you know, a, a really good reason, interfere with the, the practices that a community believes are necessary um, and demanded by by God. So uh, yeah, I, I actually think that we we cannot judge these cases by saying, well, I don't think this is important. Uh, what really matters is whether it's a sincerely held belief and then whether the government can put on enough evidence to justify the interference with um, their ability to, to practice their faith.
0: And yet it doesn't seem like the Constitution gives us the right to go work out in a gym as opposed to at home. So I don't know. It's hard to say where the
2: where <laughs> yeah, is the, where it's, is it's the standard these different. days. CrossFit may be a religion for some people, but I don't think that's the <laughs> argument. They're putting
0: forward. We yeah. do need to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about all the lawsuits that have been filed against higher education institutions. And we'll be talking about that with David Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, Nicole Garof of Grorovsky Law and Bill Vogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7k.
4: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors and more. Details at choosewood.com
0: W M U. Welcome back. We're discussing all the latest legal news with our Legal Roundtable. Today, that includes David Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, Nicole Gorovsky of Gorovsky Law, and Bill Fry Vogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And one of the major fronts that it seems like lawyers are going to be scrapping over in the coming months has to do with higher education. Now, classes in the spring semester moved from being in-person to being online it seemed like a pretty sensible thing to do at the time, but Now universities are getting hit with lawsuits over this. Um, Nicole, what's the the basic issue uh, that these people bringing these lawsuits are making?
3: So, in non-lingual terms, the issue is basically that students, you know, who paid their tuition and and you know paid for the entire college experience of being on campus and having their in-lot live in-person classes are not getting that experience and are not getting those in-person classes, and they. Um, You know, there are all kinds of class actions now on the legal terms um, popping up all over the country to um, have tuition returned because they are not getting the full benefit of what they were promised or what they believe that they paid for. And uh, it's actually a very interesting legal issue.
0: And it seems like, I mean, when you stated in those simple terms, it seems like kind of a slam dunk. You pay to be on campus and reap all the benefits of being there. You're not on campus. Bill Freivogel, is it that simple?
4: I don't think it is that simple. Uh, first of all, I want, I want you, everyone to know that my students got, got online everything they would have gotten in class, and they didn't have to look at me. So <laughs> they, they, had, they had advantages. But I mean, so, so the, the legal issues involved here are like breach of contract. Or unjust enrichment. Uh, I, I was uh, noticing a, a, a comment that was uh, by Christopher Schmidt. He's a partner at Brian Cave, so he's a local. He's a local person who's sort of an expert on this. Who was saying that he doesn't believe that any of the written agreements that that students sign uh, at the time they enter college say anything about in class. Uh, uh, by getting their their, uh, experience in class. I mean, I'm not saying that's not important. The whole college experience is important. Uh, But it may
0: give these universities a little bit of an out if that's not specified, maybe. If
4: it's it's not specified. Plus, there's all these sort of, um, you know, these various... Contract doctrines like uh, uh, force majeure. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but it's just—it's sort of—is this an act of God? Is it really? Are they just? Are they doing as good a job as they could have? Uh, there's a doctrine of impossibility. You know, things came along that made it impossible for us to uh, to, to, comp- to to give the student everything that they. Uh, that they might have wanted in the college experience, that but we're doing the best out. we can. Yeah, that could give them an out. Okay. Uh, Doctor of impracticability. It you know it just became impractical to be able to have these in, in class. Uh, plus, on the whole, unjust enrichment, the separate unjust enrichment claim. Uh, I mean, colleges are—they're are, not really getting. Uh, I mean, they're having they're having all sorts of financial problems. They're, they're not getting rich out of this. They're they're uh, even you know wealthy universities like Washington U has got has got all sorts of financial problems, causing there to have furloughs and layoffs.
0: We've actually heard from um, a number of listeners on this front. One of them is on the phone lines right now. Let's go to Brian, who's calling from Ladue. Um, Brian, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
6: Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. So. I'm going to first disclose that I'm a retired professor embarking on my second career, but in my 24 years of teaching in higher education, I clearly noticed a switch where the nonprofit mission of most universities began to take a backseat to a business ideology, Hmm. and uh, profits were a central factor in all sorts of academic decision-making. But I just want to bring up two real quick points. First off, in that last quarter century where I was teaching, I saw many college campuses become more like academic theme parks with country club amenities and facilities, which kind of blurred the cost structure for what's academic and what is playtime and socializing. Mm -hmm. I can bring up like Mizzou, they've got that multi-million dollar water park. I don't know how that figures into the academic mission of the university and how the state can justify it, but we have it. And so I think, you know, buffet pricing is really one of the perils with the cost structure.
0: Brian, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I had not thought about that. And in buffet pricing, you, you say it so, so succinctly. It's a great term. I know you had one other uh, point you, you were hoping to make here.
6: Yeah. So the truth is education has never been cheaper in this country. Sixty percent of undergraduate courses nationwide are taught by adjunct professors who average $3,000 a class with no benefits. Hmm. No contract. Yet, guess what? Students pay the same tuition, whether they're taking a class from an adjunct professor or a tenured professor with a Nobel Prize. So, yeah, I'm really glad that these lawsuits are happening, because I think higher ed has become somewhat of a racket, and I hope that uh, it forces discussion about
0: Um, Brian, thank you so much for that perspective. It's interesting to hear. We also heard from Kathy via email. She's an assistant professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. She writes that she's actually furious about this lawsuit. She's incredibly disappointed on so many levels. One, she says, this is greedy lawyers taking advantage of the COVID-19 situation. Shame on them. She says, those filing this lawsuit have absolutely no idea how complicated and difficult it was for faculty at all education institutions to transition on-the-ground classes to online format. I am thoroughly insulted by the accusation that faculty and institutions of higher education would not do everything we possibly could to provide high impact and effective learning for students. It's preposterous to think faculty, administrations, and IT staff were working less or providing less quality education to students during this time that justifies less tuition. And and she has quite a bit more to say. It's a a great comment. But Nicole, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on, on all this. Yeah, I mean, to take some of the, I mean, look, if you get bogged down
3: in professors saying they worked hard and students saying what they didn't get, I mean, obviously those are factual disputes. I want to talk a little bit about some of the legal issues because I think in Missouri, they're actually fascinating and they're in flux. So to get a little bit boring and give a little bit of history on this, um, a couple of years ago, or maybe it's only even one year ago, there was a lawsuit in Missouri of Missouri corrections officers who sued the uh, state uh, because they were doing some pre- and post-shift work that they were not getting paid for. But what was some interesting legal theory that came out of that case is that you can kind of cobble together a contract um, against a state uh, institution out of documents that aren't necessarily uh, what you would think of as traditional contracts, Hmm. Um, And so I think a lot of what universities have traditionally stood on is that we don't have a contract with our students Um, could be in flux. And so I think it's an interesting legal claim for students to say, yeah, look, the university does have a contract with us. And what they promised us is cobbled together with, with potentially what the first caller was talking about. These are the things that they promised us. Look at what they advertise on their website of, you know, we're going to come to campus. We're going to get to utilize all of these wonderful facilities. We're going to have this college experience. And so um, I read, I did actually read the lawsuit and there's, you know, some of that legal theory in there of books at um, the false advertising that was promised to us through these websites of, you know, things that we were going to get to utilize. And um, that's going to be, a, I think, a fascinating legal argument for some time
0: to come. Dave, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, so I'm glad Nicole brought up the, the idea of, of false advertising because I, I want to point out that the university at the beginning of the semester had every intention of providing the experiences that they were talking about. It's, it's not like they misrepresented themselves. Um, there was an intervening situation that prevented them from providing the services that they had intended to. And, And so I think that there is a really interesting argument as to whether this, the students should be entitled to a partial refund, and and one of the other factors in this is apparently the university did offer refunds for things like housing and certain other fees, parking fees. They refunded, or at least on a on a student by student basis, they were refunding those things. Is this the University um, of
0: Missouri? I know there's several of these entities being sued, including it was Washu, Washington
2: University. Okay,
0: so in Washu's case, they did remit a bunch of those fees. You're saying.
2: Right, but not the tuition. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically WASHU's position is, you know, we agreed to provide education and you got that edu- education, even if it wasn't quite in the format you were expecting. So we have no obligation to refund you for, uh, for the services that we provided. I think going forward, what's really going to be interesting is how many students end up changing their institutions based on the adjustments that the universities are making. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know that this kind of a lawsuit is really (sighs) gonna be an effective vehicle for them. I think what we're likely to see is market forces driving a change in the way that education is delivered because students may really prioritize certain experiences over others, or they may not. They may prefer to economize.
0: Well, and, and speaking of market forces, doesn't this put tremendous pressure on these colleges to offer this in-person experience in the fall? Because if they don't, students may well vote with their dollars, and there's potentially a real danger in that, in having a, a bunch of kids back in, in dorms. I can see this cutting several different ways. Bill, any any thoughts on yeah. what this could do outside the courtroom? <laughs>
4: No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. That the market forces that Dave is talking about are putting a lot of pressure on, on colleges to provide that uh, in-person experience, so they don't lose uh, some of their best students to some other university that is going to provide them. Um, I know Washington University just announced yesterday that they're. You know they're going to try to. I think they're starting a little bit later, maybe, and you know they're going to be providing an in an in, in class experience. Uh, so yes, I think I think there is the possible danger that we'll find we'll discover uh, in January. Oh, we opened up too soon.
0: We we'll have. We have more listeners with thoughts on this. Joshua writes on Twitter, my wife is in a nurse practitioner program. She couldn't finish her clinical hours due to the pandemic. She shouldn't have to take on that debt. It's hard not to be sympathetic to what he's saying there. Um, Fred is on the phone lines calling from Glendale. Hi, Fred, you're on St. Louis on the Air.
5: Hello. Uh, Yes, my concern is for our our local uh, education providers. It seems to me that our local school districts are between a rock and a hard place because it's probably a given that the students are going to be somehow exposed to the possibility of acquiring this coronavirus. Now, I was wondering if the school district were to require a hold harmless agreement from the parents of students returning to class if, in fact, such an agreement would be enforceable. It's kinda of like, you know, if you're having your roof done with it by a contract. There's a contract that can have you hold, sign a hold harmless agreement if the, if an accident would occur or something.
0: Fred, that's a that's a really good question. Like could people agree to find the university not liable if it let people come back in person? I I hope I'm stating that right. Does anyone on our panel have a a strong thought on whether or not that would even be possible? Um, Bill, I'm going to put you on the I, spot. <laughs> I, I
4: have a strong thought that parents would, would be really mad at being to be asked uh, that asked to sign that they'd say, you may, you know, let's make the right decision. Let's not, let's, uh, you know, let's not try to put this all on the parents to take on all the, you know, all the possible harm. So does the so,
0: university have to take all the risk? And, and <laughs> those of us who are individual factors, we bear no responsibility on the choice we make.
4: Well, you know, we have responsibility for ourselves, but in general, I think it is the university and the university community, which would include, which to a certain extent includes the parents and the students as well, uh, trying to make what they think is the decision that's
0: best
2: for the university and best for the students.
0: Dave, uh, I get the sense you might have some thoughts on this.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think it's a, a, a good question about the extent to which universities, you know, could ask this question, you know, can, can you uh, require students to enter into a hold harmless agreement? Um, but I actually think that a lawsuit based on the possibility of contracting an illness is pretty far-fetched. Hmm. Um, you know, fact of the matter is, everyone who uh, is, is a part of society now understands that there are certain risks to going out and interacting with other people. But how would a plaintiff prove that the school is responsible for them contracting an illness. So, does the I mean, university? This is an illness you can get literally anywhere.
0: The university would actually have more liability then if it doesn't come back and no, students I, don't I get actually, that in person thing. They they have a better chance of suing over that oh, than, than oh, if no. they got it.
2: Well, I'm not going to say a better chance because I, I don't know that I'm optimistic about the the likelihood of prevailing on this lawsuit. Sure, but um, but I, I do think that that's, a, that's an interesting point. I think it would be really difficult. To prove that a university is liable for, say, a student getting coronavirus, um, frankly, it's it's more likely that the university could run into trouble with its faculty or staff. Mm. Um, but uh, but but I think that you know we're going to have to watch and see how these schools adapt. And and in fact. They can ask students um, and parents to enter into a hold harmless agreement. Uh, I don't know the extent to which the parents or students will be willing to do that.
0: Um, Kathy, that uh, assistant professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, whose email I read earlier, um, she had another point in this that, that kind of made me think. And, you know, she's very upset about these lawsuits, but she notes a frivolous lawsuit only costs taxpayers more and damages the ability of the universities to actually provide quality education. She says the implications of this kind of lawsuit will cause a tremendous decline in affordable education. A lawsuit like this will unravel a fragile education system and make it even harder for students to pay for school. Now, whether or not that, that point is correct on its face... I imagine that for judges hearing these cases, you know, there's a lot of concern that, hey, if we say that schools can't do this, that the whole system could just topple. Is that something that a judge is allowed to take into account? Or do they have to just look at the situation in this particular case? Bill, any thoughts on that? Well,
4: yeah. I mean, A, A, I think this is not a frivolous lawsuit, uh, even though I think they probably aren't going to win because I think the defenses are, 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 are really good. Um, But, uh, yeah, can a judge take that into account, Uh, you know, in considering issues of impossibility and impracticability, uh, sort of the resources uh, or unjust enrichment, the resources of the university are are something that would come up. And, you know, most state universities around the country are getting less and less um, uh, state support. Mm. So, you know, for there to be even another blow to state universities in particular is a situation that that is, a some, you know, somewhat risky.
2: Dave. So as to the question of should judges take these things into account, I think the answer is no. Um, I mean, what we want from our judges is to be impartial and to look only at the facts that are in front of them and the law that is supposed to apply to them. And so I think that it would be improper for a judge to think outside of the four corners of the case that they're considering and say, well, I'm going to rule this way because I don't like the implications Mm -hmm. of ruling the other way. Um, Now, does that ever happen? Ah, maybe it does. But (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to point any particular fingers.
0: Nicole, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, just to add on to what
3: Dave was saying, I was going to agree with Yeah, they shouldn't, but as a practical matter, they all do.
0: Hmm. Well, that's uh, (laughs) it'll be interesting (laughs) to see how the students then could have an uphill battle here. Um, We've just got a couple minutes left here, but I feel like we need to mention on May 19th, Missouri became the first state in the country to execute someone during this pandemic. And the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals, again, we're talking Texas here, they put a halt to executions in that state after facing a legal challenge for one death row inmate. The court, quote, determined that the execution should be stayed at the present time in light of the current health crisis. Uh, Bill, are you surprised Missouri went ahead with this?
4: I guess I'm not surprised, but I think it was a horrible injustice. Mm-hmm. And you know, my I put I would put my argument less on the fact that we're in the middle of the COVID crisis and more on the fact that this this individual, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Barton had a a pretty good case of actual innocence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Wolf, we heard. From at the beginning of this of this show, wrote a really good op-ed uh, in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and he has written a number of dissenting opinions while he was on the, the Missouri Supreme Court, pointing out that the case against this uh, individual that he had uh, stabbed someone fifty times was incredibly weak. It re- relied mm-hmm. on two particular things. One one was a jailhouse snitch uh, that that is always an indicia. Of, of a false, uh, of, a, of a questionable prosecution.
0: Um, in our last minute here, Nicole, uh, thoughts on that? I know you're a former prosecutor.
3: Yeah, I'm going to disagree with Bill here. I don't believe in the death penalty, and so um, maybe that that sort of clouds things, but as a former prosecutor, I look at the cases, um, and when someone's claiming actual in- innocence, you know, that happens in, you know, er- almost every case I've ever tried. Someone claims actual innocence, Right. So I did a lot of digging into this case and I went back into, um, you know, the the facts. And in fact, this one was in the attorney general's office while I was there. And I know the person who uh, did a lot of the appeals. And um, there's a lot more evidence than the press was making it sound like that. They made it sound at first. I was like, oh, my God, this only relied on blood spatter. And I know that that's gotten controversial in the last 30 years from, you know, when it happened. But there's actually a lot more evidence uh, if you dig into the record. And uh, juries found him guilty every time it was overturned on, on some legal technicalities. But um, I thought it was a relatively weak actual innocence claim.
0: OK, well, some controversy um, around that death, as there always is in, in capital okay. cases. And that's a sobering note to end on. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Nicole Gorovsky of Gorovsky Law, thank you for joining us today. And and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Thank you. Thanks. And finally, David Rowland of the Freedom Center for Missouri. Thank you for joining
2: us. Thank you for having me on.
0: This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.